Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts. Welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Well, it's September. Where, where did the summer go? My name's still Paul Tarsi, and I'm joined by the usual Historic Racing News radio show team, Jim Roller, Joe Bradley and Paul Jurd. This month, Jim Roller is going to talk about the Monterey Car Week, and we'll take a close look at the upcoming Goodwood Revival. And then, at the end of all that fun, we'll have another game of our opinionated nonsense called Corridors of Power. Up until now, what we've done is we've always looked at the best. We've looked at the, the prettiest, the best liveries, all those kind of things. We're going to take a view from the other end of the telescope this time, and we're going to look at the weirdest cars ever to hit the track. Now, Joe, you uh, you chased the cobwebs away last month when you were part of the Radio Le Mans team covering the great 24-hour race. Uh, mm-hmm. I watched it on TV, uh, and I have to say, with the sound turned down and Radio Le Mans turned up, and uh, I can't make up my mind whether it was a predictable procession with Toyota 1-2 or whether it was a classic or whether it was something in the mid- mm. middle. What do you think? Well, I'm glad you've actually opened with that, Paul, because... I described the 2021 Le Mans 24 Hours as a discreet classic. <laughs> and what, what I mean by that is, if you look at, if, if in 10 years' time, when we look at 2021, the, the start of the new era, the beginning of the new era, from little acorns grow big oak trees, I'm pretty sure that's going to be the case for the 24 hours. But on paper, yeah, one, two for Toyota, hmm. Yeah, big deal. Uh, the Alpine, mm, yeah, it was a grandfathered car. It was actually, you know, another car, actually another two cars, because it was the uh, it was the Rebellion R13, which was an Oracle LMP too. So let's not go there uh, too, too little time. Glickenhaus, yeah, maybe, you know, Glickenhaus, they came, they threatened, they did not deliver. And then, you know, fantastic finish in LMP2. But let's, let's go back to the overall, you know, because people always look at the overall result. And... To see a one-two from Toyota, you would then have to peel back the sticker and look at what went on in that race. And the fact that both both of those Toyota hypercars were basically nursed to the finish. Nursed to the finish in kind of 70s style, but with a 21st century edge. So back back in the 70s and 80s, people would nurse clutches and nurse gearboxes and nurse engines that were down on six, seven cylinders from the, you know, the, the available eight. Whereas this, these days, the 21st century nursing was an electronics fuel flow, fuel pressure issue that, uh, that um, kind of they fathomed out all of those absolutely brilliant engineers at Toyota Gazoo Racing, absolutely on the hoof, fathomed out that, 
if the driver, when they were flat out on the Mulzahn, heading towards the first chicane and any other braking area, they would have to go through a sequence of buttons in the right sequence as they were braking and changing down for the oncoming corner. And they had to do that for about the last what? Well, I'm not sure the, 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 the true information has come forward, but they were having to do that with about 10 hours to go or something. Um, and very much from the off, the Seb Wemi car, the number eight, had a problem on in the first 15 minutes where you saw him actually pull over and do a control of delete and then continue in last place. And then we watched that car come through the field, nursing that issue. So when, you know, I'm looking forward to the analysis in Race Car Engineering magazine and the like, where we'll get, you know, we'll finally, Toyota, who are very open with their information, will come forward and say that. And during the race, of course, they weren't. And we were just assuming and presuming and looking and seeing what we could see. And 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 when when you see how those guys got those cars home, and there was, there was one point on one of my stints where we went in car with Brendan Hartley, uh, who was also in the number eight with Seb Wemi and Kaz Nakajima. And you heard the in-car radio, and the information was, you're 5% down on aero and 10 points. Now, we presumed that the 5% down on aero was a damaged, or I think he said front aero. I, I, I presumed, or assumed rightly, that that was to do with a damaged uh, front end, yeah. which was changed in the in the in the next uh, pit stop and vindicated my assumption. Uh, but the, te- the 10 point thing or point 10 or 10 points, I think it was, and you're at 10 points. I'm, well, I'm still not sure what that, that means. Um, and I, like I say, I might find the answer to that. But there was that, that was what was going on. That was what was going on behind that victory. So like I say, Paul, um, when, when you factor in all of that tension, and the possibility of right at the end, any of the, either of those cars could have stopped. And I haven't even began to talk about the the other cars. Of course, we we were we were staring an Alpine victory in the face. We were, yeah, yeah. you know, we were staring a Glickenhaus on the pole at their first attempt with their hypercar. Um, and and then LMP two. What can you say about that? The um, the WRT team, that infamous Belgian team that have come through DTM and GT3 and have won races at the Nürburgring 24 hours, the Spa 24 hours, and here they are for the first time running an LMP2 prototype. And they are absolutely bossing it with a 1-2 pretty much throughout the race. And then the, their lead car stops. It absolutely it grinds to a halt on the final lap of the race. And then, and then we had that scene where the Toyotas are coming to the finish to take their photo, photo finish checkered flag picture. Behind them, literally only metres behind them, you've got the the then inherited leader of LMP2, the number 31 WR team, with the Jota, the 28 Jota, with I think it was Blomquist at the wheel, yeah. chasing yeah, him down to something like seven tenths of a second at the line. Um, and almost taking out the guy with the flag in doing so, yes, he did. because everybody's backing up behind the Toyotas to be in on the to be in on the on the on the shot on the money shot, and then these two LMP2 cars. I, I don't know what's going to happen about that. I think I'm a bit torn, opinion wise, as to whether or not that tradition of having the guy standing right out 
on the track when there's still a race going on. I think that was a lack of communication. I think yeah. he should have been told uh, there's still a race to the flag here behind this this lead group. You might want to bear that in mind and we might want to cheer, you know, step to the wall a bit more. Um, I think he went out there and, you know, I, I, and perhaps, Paul, I know what happens at the end of the race and I know how detached you can be from what's happening at the end of the race because I've been in the pit lane many, many times and preparing to get the winning car and the winning team of drivers. And there's a media scrum at the winning garage and you've got to fight your way through to be one of the first people to get that winning interview. Apart from 2016, when Toyota ground to a halt and I had to run, oh my goodness, I've got to run halfway down the pit lane to Porsche. Uh, and and the, the media scrum followed me. Um, but that's another story. Um, you become... <laughs> You become detached from what's happening in the race because you're ready. You know who's going to win the win the race. You haven't got a clue who's winning LMP2. Or, or if there's a change, I should say, you haven't got a clue what's going on on the track. Even though you can hear the commentary in your head, you're focused on doing your job. And yeah. I think that flagman was perhaps a victim of that where, right, mate, there's the checkered flag. You know what to do. Um, and he's kind of become detached because what we didn't expect was the 41 WRT Orica to clap out on the last yeah. lap. But I so, remember with um, Derek, Derek Bell telling me of 1988 when Jaguar won and that he was in the Porsche and he was on the same lap and that he was closing down the, the Jaguar in front of him and he said that on that last lap, all the marshals were in the road waving the flags and <laughs> and that and he was going hell for leather to try and close this gap. And he couldn't. And that he he was trying as hard as he could, but it just wasn't going to happen because there were beginnings of the fan invasion, which then, of course, took up the start-finish line as well. So, yeah, it's nothing new, but I think that's that's true. Jim, the, uh, the Glickenhaus entry, what do you think? Um, well, well, first, Paul, at what point of the year does your name change? Why? Well, because you said at the top of the show, you're still Paul Tarsi. And I just wondered if w- what month I need to make notes for my emails and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> your, your name I'll let you know. <laughs> uh, Glicken House. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm changing classic- it to Maureen, by the way. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Classic uh, American Dante Co- Don Quixote story. Um, I think that what he pulled off was not miraculous, but um, gosh, it just a um, overpowering the cause with sheer will and determination to make this happen. And I think that he will never be able to, this is John Rondeau. This is um, in in some ways, Alan Decadne Um, Rondeau. I think his, his opportunity was this year um, because the field was uh, thin, and that is in no way a criticism. It's the first year of a new formula. But when all of the other major factories come and join the party, 
Um, he he uh, uh, will um, probably suffer um, fates that will eventually cause him to to go somewhere else. I I think. Yeah, it's a narrow window. Um, I, I feel bad saying that because I have nothing but respect and admiration for what his team pulled off. Uh, there were a lot of people who scoffed and said that car will never see the light of day. It'll never be fast enough to even make the race. All of that crap. And mm-hmm. there he was on the pole. Uh, and uh, short of some early problems, probably would have been a little bit more competitive. But, you know, it's a 24-hour race. And they should be applauded and lauded for what they did. But I think that it's um, he's tilting at windmills a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I understand very much what you mean. While we're talking about um, endurance racing, Paul George, you've uh, you've been doing something rather uh, rather different in terms of endurance racing. Oh, very much so. I was actually rather surprised that the eyes of the world were on Le Mans last Saturday because I was at Alton Park <laughs> for a five-hour enduro car race. <laughs> <laughs> which saw a field of 40 plus um, of the, if you remember the, what the Ford Cath, the original early sort of bubbly shaped ones. And we had a fantastic race. And it also says something about tires because not a single tire change in five hours of racing and 40 cars. Toyo build a tough tire is all I'm going to say. <laughs> but it's a, it's a great series, isn't it? It was really good fun. Yeah. <laughs> they've got little engines, um, 65 horsepower. I think it is. They can't get you. Someone makes a mistake. You don't lose a lot of time and yeah, they hunt in packs and it was, it was, it was good fun. It was really, really good fun. <laughs> I am building one. Oh, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. We are, are, really? we are I, I'm part of a group of a couple of lads and I are building a enduro car. We've got three cars of which we're going to make two. It's currently on a spit, which basically enables us to get it anywhere on the car. It's about to have the engine going it. We were hoping to be out this year. Um, with the COVID issues, it uh, became a little bit complicated with uh, getting parts and stuff. Uh, but we're hoping to be out next year with it. I just still don't know whether I'm going to drive it or just crew chief it. But, um, yeah, we, there's, a, there's, a lot to, there's a lot more to them than meets the eye. Or is that just my attention to detail and trying to find that unfair advantage? You be the judge. You're, you're going to be the Roger Penske of Intel. <laughs> oh, I'm, going, I'm not going to push that far out, Paul. But yeah, I, I know exactly what Paul uh, is talking about. I did uh, the same event about three years ago, and um, it yeah, came you down. And, you and I did it. You, you and I did it, Paul. And can you remember the finish? Yes. Can you remember the, the margin at the finish? Seven one thousandths of a second. Yeah, after six hours, wasn't it? Yes. It was yes. mega. Yeah. So, uh, no, that's uh, – well, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, watch out, Toyota, <laughs> watch out, everybody else, that uh, it's only uh, a matter of time before the um, Bradley Racing Team moves from uh, Enduro Car up to uh, up to the Le Mans 24 hours. But uh, it all started here, so that's great news. Yeah. Well, done. Just, well I, just time, time and a lottery win. That's all it will take. I, I think Paul George being completely unfair because because uh, here in the United States, uh, yes, uh, many eyes are on Le Mans, um, but the, what eclipsed the Eurocar in the United States was in Auburn, <laughs> Washington, 
they had the annual Corgi Racing Championship at the horse race track there. And a Corgi by the name of Angus uh, was victorious. And why do I know this? Because this was a half-hour program on a national network in the United States, NBC. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, wow. we will put anything on television. In <laughs> now, it's always difficult when motorsport loses an important or influential member of the team. Yeah. And for the journalistic community, it's equally hard. Within that group, there is then the smaller group still of people like us who talk about the things that we love. And Jim, we've lost two giants in the last few weeks. Yeah, sadly, here in America, Bob Jenkins and Robin Miller both passed away recently from cancer both of them after fairly significant and hard fights. Bob Jenkins was uh, one who helped put NASCAR on the map here in the United States. He was one of ESPN's earliest announcers from uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, and he became the voice of NASCAR on ESPN for uh, a couple of decades. And while his first love was always Indianapolis, you never would have known that his passion for stock cars wasn't as as deep as his passion for Indy cars. Um, that's how professional he was. Uh, he was loved by everybody that worked with him. He was one of the kindest men that you would ever want to want to work with, and um, it was a it was a big loss for not only the racing community but the television community. The other person who passed away, Robin Miller, um, became more famous in his later years. He started out as a journalist with the Indianapolis Star. He actually raced USAC midgets. Um, he fell in love with the sport at an early age when his dad took him to the Indy 500. Um, he became very controversial uh, as a columnist for the Indianapolis Star during the cart IndyCar split. He was a big advocate of cart in that process. And he eventually, because of his position politically, was shoved out of the Indianapolis Star by local small town politics because of the George family's power in Indianapolis. But that only proved that, that seriously backfired on them because when he was no longer with the Indianapolis star, he became a star on television as a, as a reporter for Dave Despain's wind tunnel program, which was a, an opinion call in show that was hugely popular here in the United States and went on to be a kind of columnist uh, reporter type for the IndyCar coverage on NBC. And he was very popular and he will be missed by many many um he ha always had an opinion whether you liked it or not he didn't care and he was not afraid to call out any big name in the sport if he felt they had transgressed in some way shape or form and he he always garnered a lot of respect for that so rest in peace bob jenkins and robin miller thank you jim and thank you for a difficult thing well done thank you the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Now, if the Goodwood Festival of Speed up the Duke's Drive at Goodwood House is part garden party, part county show, and part motorsport event, 
then the Guildford Revival, which is one of the most significant historic race events in the world, but it's wrapped up in a, in a giant film set. And Goodwood Motor Circuit was opened in 1948 and was a top-line circuit until 1966. But the circuit reopened in 1998 and has been running ever since. So you don't need to be a mathematician to work out that, in fact, it's been open longer since than it was the first time around, which is really quite strange. Um, and we've all been to Goodwood at various times over the years. Um, it, as we all know, it was formed by the perimeter roads of RAF West Hampnet, which was built by the War Ministry uh, at the very beginning of World War II. And they requisitioned the land from the Goodwood estate and then when they handed it back, as they handed it back to you know anybody where they requisitioned land, they just said, "Here's the land back," and it still had all the all the runways and perimeter roads and buildings and everything else, which is why drive around much of eastern or southern England and you'll see countless fields with T two aircraft hangars on them and those sorts of things even now. The Duke of Richmond, who the then Duke of Richmond was known as Freddie March in the 30s when he was a very successful Brooklyn's racer. And that when his friend, the Australian Spitfire pilot, Tony Gaze, said, why don't you use this perimeter road as a racetrack? He was all over it like a rash. And I don't think you have rashes, but um, but he was all, all over it. And it was only some years later that Tony Gaze actually admitted that the Spitfire pilots based at West Hampton had used the perimeter road as a racetrack during the war. But that's, uh, that's a different one. The circuit itself is virtually unchanged, or it is unchanged from those, those early days. Um, there's a few gravel traps now, um, which you have to do to get a license. But besides that, the the track itself is exactly as it was, still very fast and definitely not for the faint-hearted. I've driven it a few times and in a variety of different cars. Always been grateful to get back to the paddock in one piece, to be honest. And even though I've had a wonderful time, it's a, it's a very... Um, it's a very character-building circuit. Now, obviously, part of the whole thing is the theatre and that you can't get into the paddock unless you're in period costume. And, Jim, when you came over um, three years ago, um, yeah. your, uh, your outfit was amazing. I'm not, not sure what, uh, what rank your uniform gave you. Uh, it was captain. A captain. So the the full U.S. captain uniform, um, and uh, and I have to say, you uh, you look superb in it. Um, <laughs> that um, a few years before that, um, I had Bill Warner from the Amelia Island Concord um, came to stay for the Goodwood Revival Week, and he went to the revival in the uh, the Air Force uniform. Um, and I said, wow, where did you get that? And he said, it's mine. It's I what I wore. 
I was going to say, his was real. Mine was a costume. <laughs> yeah. was real. I, I have to say that anything that I, I had in my wardrobe 20 years ago ain't going to fit. <laughs> it's, as, uh, it's as bad as that. But uh, um, there's so much theatre going on. Paul, do you remember the the Italian job feature that uh, that was there all those years ago? It was with, with the tank. Sorry, with the, with the coach and everything, and lots of the vehicles from mm. the film. And then they would reenact it about every twenty minutes with the three matching minis screaming through the building it was in. That was absolutely fantastic, and uh, also just completely unexpected because I didn't didn't realize they were doing that and you just almost walked into what was a film set even with people who looked very very much like the original actors staying in character for the whole three days <laughs> i was i was watching the uh the video we made of the uh of the event the other day and which you can find on youtube on the hrn channel and um that <laughs> it was your comment about the person who was dressed as professor peach <laughs> the oh, Benny Hill character, and, uh, and he's going to stay in character all weekend. <laughs> he, he, with, with, without saying too much, he was loving it, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. Now, one of the things that we've got this coming weekend, and we'll talk about in a minute, is uh, a mini-only race. And, Joe, I remember sitting in the Woodcut Grandstand with you for members meeting some mm. years ago. Um, when it was, I said, mini only event, and you said to me it was one of the best races you'd ever seen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it wasn't just because of um, some interest in a couple of the drivers that were in that. I mean, where we were standing, where we were sitting, Paul, in the grandstand just before the Woodcut Chicane, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and every time they came towards us, each and every one of them looked like they were going so fast, they would just fly off at a tangent. And how they actually made it round the right-hander towards the chicane and then on and into and out of the chicane, swapping places, three wide coming into the corner. It was, you know, if make sure you are somewhere trackside up against the barrier for the mini race at yeah. the Revival. It is... Don't get too close. <laughs> uh, well, well, yeah, you know what? That's that's you know part of the experience, Jim. I mean, you know, when I say that, when you know the the Whitson Trophy is one of my favourite uh, parts of that event because Lola T seventies, GT forties, uh, the early sports prototypes up to sixty six, they allowed to make the ground shake, but hey, the minis will take the cake. They will absolutely take the trophy for the best action and the best racing. Fabulous. Now, the, the weekend kicks off on Friday night. And Friday all day is qualifying. Then Friday night, they have what always used to be called the Kinrara Trophy because that's one of the family names of of the of the Duke. Um, but that's been renamed as the Sterling Moss Memorial Trophy and quite right too. Uh, the The event itself is for road-going GT cars of the 1960s. Um, so with the RICTT celebration, which is a different thing, which we'll come to in a minute, those are very, very highly developed race cars, that these are, as I say, road-going cars. But when you look at the cars that were in the, in the, last, the last event, 
in two years ago, uh, we had a road going Ferrari 250 GT. <coughs> we had, yes, exactly. Um, Aston Martin DB4 GT, several 250 short wheelbase Ferraris, um, several road going E types, um, Austin Heat 3000s, all those sorts of things. And that happens late on the Friday. So you get some brilliant photo opportunities with the uh, with the sun going down I, I know paul that you were you are a bit of a, an amateur photographer in the nicest possible way and um that uh, they are beautiful opportunities aren't they oh they are it's always a fantastic race particularly because those cars are from the era when um yeah engine horsepower sort of outranked on grip really so uh, <laughs> you know you you will see cars hanging the back ends out and drivers really having to work to get a quick lap out of them but yeah as the sun's going down you get that optimum time when that light is that golden touch to it. And yeah, they're fantastic cars anyway, just made so much better by the light that's shining down on them. <laughs> that sounds very poetic, Paul. The, um, the, the weekend proper kicks off Saturday morning with what is this year being called the Festival of Britain Trophy. This is the 70th anniversary of the Festival of Britain and that for anybody who doesn't know, Britain obviously had been through um, six years of pretty horrible war. There was an awful lot of damage, uh, and the the nation was very nearly bankrupt. And that the government of the time decided that they were going to do something about it, and they created this thing, the Festival of Britain, which was very very positive. It was all about the way forward. It's all about technology 70 years ago, but it was all about that and that Goodwood are celebrating the Festival of Britain and at the uh, the 70th anniversary as well. So they've given it the title of Festival of Britain for what used to be the Goodwood Trophy. Now, these cars are for that period, sort of immediately pre and post um, Second World War. So 1930s and 1940s. Interestingly, the the older cars, because probably they're racing more often, are quicker than the newer ones. And that that we we talk about, you know, ERAs and those sorts of things as being out there. But when you look at it, it's these drivers are running those cars exactly the same spec as in period so no roll hoops no data loggers certainly no seat belts tires are a bit wider than they would have been but the average speed last time out of those cars was 90 miles an hour average now jim is that brave or foolhardy <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the things that makes revival special um Speaking of the, the Friday night race, when you and I went, it was just stunning to see how hard those cars were being driven. This was a real motor race. And if you extrapolate that out to the the uh, festival trophy race that you're talking about, that thing is going to be absolutely fantastic. And and yes, it's brave, it's foolhardy, but it's what they did and and. Good on the guys who are going to get out there and carry on that tradition. That's that. I'm I'm sad. I'm not going to see that one this year. 
You you will very soon, I promise you. <laughs> it's it's just a lack of imagination, guys. That's all it is. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, would would you go out there and do it? Yes. Yeah, of course yes, I would. We all would. <laughs> of course I would. Fine, that's a, of course as, I would. As the old saying, you know, the the days when uh, when motor, motor racing was dangerous and sex was safe. Um, <laughs> that's right. So, and the, the thing is, Paul, the, the thing drivers is, were fat. <laughs> the thing is, Paul. That's why it's... that class is for us. <laughs> well, the thing is, Paul. When when you do anything that is dangerous, whether it be rock climbing, whether it be driving a race car, um, you have to take the attitude that that was them, not me. That won't happen to me because mm-hmm. I won't make that same mistake. Yeah, that's it's is not. I mean. I've, I've, I mean, it, you know, I, I used to do quite a dangerous job for a living, didn't I? I mean, and it yeah. was always when I would analyze things that had happened to other people in, you know, in policing, I would always think, hmm, I would have dealt with that a little bit differently and I wouldn't have gotten hurt. And I think that's probably and most likely to be the mindset of how this, those things were raced in period and how they're still raced today. And they are still raced. They're not displayed, are they? Oh no! Oh, Those no, guys are out there. Racing. Yeah, serious absolutely. Racing. All right, there might there might be a bit of etiquette, but even back in the period, there was etiquette, and the reason there was etiquette and no wheel banging and the like, and you know, discretion being the better part of valor and all that, was because your life depended on it. Yeah, yeah, and you know, back in back in period, uh, Ascari, for example, was well known as being probably the wrong side of that etiquette line. Mm-hmm. Uh, really and, right. I, and that right. he would um, he would push just that bit harder than anybody else, and was not popular because of it. So, yeah, different kind of thing. The the Barry Sheen Memorial Trophy, um, obviously for bikes, is uh, a two parter, twenty five minutes each, and in each mm-hmm. race there are two riders. So even less starts it, and then even, they have to change it. Even less imagination. Yes, yes, I'm the, that even really less on a motorcycle. Completely mad. Um, I've, I think it's it's wholly right that this has always been known as the Barry Sheen Memorial Trophy. Barry was a stalwart of Goodwood Revival in the early days um, and came. And when he was very ill, evidently he he phoned Charles March as he then was and said, "Look, you know, I'm." I'm really not up to coming and competing this year. And and Charles said, no, of course, you know, you fully understand that. Um, and three weeks before revival, he phoned Charles March and said, damn it, I'm going to do it. And he did it. And he was dead very shortly afterwards. But uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's the sort of man that he was. And uh, Barry Sheen certainly deserves to be, to be honoured by that, and uh, that will be good fun. St. Mary's Trophy. Now, that's a two-parter. Um, and that's the two-parter for saloon cars, as we used to call them. Um, touring cars, as we would now talk about them. Um, they alternate this one. It goes from either the 1950s or the 1960s, and we're on the 50s this time around. So no Lotus Cortinas, no Ford Galaxies, but instead, we've got Austin A40s, Jaguar Mark 1s, and 
some uh, yeah, lots of, of other stuff as well. Paul Jared, this it's always a tough race, isn't it? This one. It's always an interesting race, purely because of that split of those two parters, where you tend to have the celebrity driver in for one day and then the owner of the car in for the other, with quite a marked performance difference between the two. And quite often you, you wonder what the instructions to the celebrities were. I can remember being actually out on the circuit, out at Lafferts actually, uh, a couple of years ago, and it was Andrew Jordan out in a Lotus Cortina and Roman Dumas in a Ford Galaxy, and they were panel bashing. Yeah. And I think Andrew was pushed off the circuit at one point. And you're thinking, well, this isn't historic. Well, this is just plain racing, isn't it? You can forget the historic element of it whatsoever. Yeah, and and I think you know, that was a particularly unfortunate episode because uh, I don't think that Roman Dumas covered himself in glory in that one. As you say, it's owners on one side and then celebs on the other. And this this one that on the Saturday is for owners. Now... It is quite interesting that you get some owners, in inverted commas, um, who are genuinely the custodians of the cars, but who are pretty quick drivers. And you've got people like Justin Law in the um, in the Mark One Jaguar. You've got um, Grant Williams, who is uh, who is also out there. Um, you've got Nick Swift, the Mini Man, um, and. Mike Jordan, aforementioned Mike Jordan, is down as the car owner. Now, he is the car owner, and his celebrity driver is his son, Andrew. Who is a <laughs> now, so Mike, Mike has won B, um, BTCC races. He's, uh, he's an extremely, extremely experienced driver, but, oh, I'm, I'm just the car's owner. Yeah. Andrew is the, Andrew is the, the professional the celeb. But it's you know that, that's another, another one, and nobody but nobody builds a better historic race car than the Jordan Racing Team, and I think they will certainly be hard to beat. But I spoke to Grant Williams recently um, for the second part of our Jaguars in Competition special, which will be going out in a couple of weeks' time, and. He said that there are a couple of minor changes in the regulations, which means that his Mark One Jaguar is going to be a whole lot more competitive than it has been in the past. That car has got the registration number by one, which is the car run by John Coombs of Guildford for Roy Salvadori and amongst many others. So, uh, Keep your eyes open on that one. There's always a few weird ones that slip in. There's a last time out there was a Jowett Javelin or a standard Vanguard or a Vauxhall Crester. You know that uh, they're they're all there. They, sorry, uh, sorry, a Vauxhall Crester that hasn't rusted to dust. <laughs> yes, it's the only one. Oh, okay. <laughs> Wilson Trophy. Um, you touched on this, Joe. It's the uh, it's the the big bangers. It's uh, the McLarens and it's the Lolas, and that's right up your alley, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I love the ground to shake when a race car fires up. And when these guys go past in these cars, I was too, I'm too young to remember these cars in period. And, you know, open pipes were a thing, certainly when I got involved in motorsport. And these days, it's such a rare thing to uh, have cars that sound like this anymore and 
you know, uh, the sight of a Lola T70, it's just, I've, I've used this adage many times lately. And I just think if you wheeled a Lola T70 out now and called it a hypercar, everyone would go, yeah, yeah, that fits. Yeah, yeah. And that, was a, that was a 1960s sports car. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I do know what you mean. And that's, again, you know, there's this, there's this racetrack exactly the same way as it was 70 years ago. And you know what, Paul? They're doing 106 you, you, mile an hour laps. Yeah, you know what, Paul? The thing about... Um, I remember the first time I ever went to a big meeting at Goodwood, which would have been that members meeting. I went with Tim Pendergast, yes. uh, where we spent some time together. And I'm standing there at, at the barrier, just on the outside of the chicane, just before the pit lane. And I, I, I was transported back to a to a part of a uh, point in time where I fell in love with this sport. And I was kind of wandering around Goodwood. We we pretty much circumnavigated the whole. Because the thing about Goodwood is you can walk all the way around the outside, all yeah. the way around, and be and and see the track and see the track at every point on the on that circuit, which is brilliant. Joe, if I could and, just chip in, I was I was going to say exactly the same. And if anyone does do that, go to St Mary's. There are oh, very yeah. very few places you will get as close to a car at speed as you do when you stood at St Mary's. Yeah, and the thing about that, Paul, is what I'm about to say is I exactly that. I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was about Goodwood that took me back in time to perhaps that first day when my dad drove me into Croft and we popped out and I first time I'd ever run up onto an embankment and saw a racetrack for the first time. It took me back to then. And then it came to me. No debris fencing. Yeah. <laughs> Standing yeah. against a wooden fence a patch of grass, a tyre barrier, whether it be an earth bank or a piece of armco, and you're kind of high up on it, but no debris fencing. And Do you that, remember, that's Joe, when, when, we, uh, when we were there with, with Tim Pendergast and that they ran the race for early uh, 9-11 short wheelbases? Do you yeah. remember that? Yes, I do. And that uh, that was... I think probably I mean it was way before Patrick Peter had started his series for them, but the difference was that with Peter Auto, they have a modern tire which is allowed for that Goodwood event. It was a Dunlop tire which was a spec tire which was effectively a 1960s tire, and the slip angles were ridiculous. Oh, it it was through some merit through through what. What's yeah. the first corner called? Madrick. Well, uh, Madrick. The, the first corner on the track is uh, is Madrick, yeah. Right. So through Madrick, the cars were pitched into a four-wheel drift, leaning, and with a with a at a, a, a an angle of oversteer throughout the corner. And then that pitched the other way to go through the left left hander and then the right hander. And then and then basically the cars were they ever in a straight line? Were they ever pointing <laughs> no. where they were travelling? They were always at no. some point of angle of oversteer, and the it was just so gorgeous to watch the skill, the skill of those ready quick boys. And we lad Andrew Jordan into that because I remember you know battling wheel to wheel with these cars drifting. And of course, back in the days that it, you know the fifties and the sixties, all race cars were driven like that, even Formula One cars. Yes. You know, yes. we, we, we kind of forget that 
you know, Formula One cars back in the 50s were a constant, were constantly sliding across the surface of the track from one corner to the next. And yes, they went down the straight, but then they would be sliding again. Uh, not like today, where there's an element of sliding, but it's oddly discernible, isn't it? Oh, and and we've we've mentioned Andrew several times. Andrew Jordan, um, he will be joining us on one of our podcasts uh, sometime later in the year to talk about his his racing year because he's he's done quite a lot of different stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, after the John Whitmore Trophy, which is the mini race, we've got the Sussex Trophy, um, which is for sports cars, um, and that's for the cars like uh, Roger Wills. Lotus um, and Sam Hancock in that glorious Ferrari 246. We've seen those two battling out on track. I remember, Jim, when you and I commentated on the um, Le Mans Classic and yeah. there were uh, th- those cars were out there for, uh, for a couple of races and they, they really do bring a lump to your throat, don't they? They really do, and the whole event does, because you have the nostalgia, you have the people watching, which is the most sublime part yes. of the event, as far as I'm concerned. But as as Joe was saying, the each one of these races has a unique element to it, whether it be because of the era or because of the type of cars or how they're driven, you know, when you get all those minis out there and that sort of stuff. That's just it's fantastic action, but it's three days of sensory overload. There is no (laughs) other way to describe it, whether it be the on track action or the paddock action or even, believe it or not, the shopping. You know, now this is you, you, you would think that I have the best pair of foot socks. Hmm that I've ever purchased, I purchased at the Goodwood Revival. I still have them three and they unbelievable, ladies and gentlemen, you got, you got to try the shopping, but uh, seriously, the, um, the, the way anybody who has any doubts uh, about historic racing, vintage racing, whatever moniker you want to give it needs to go to revival and watch the way these cars are driven because it is stunning. And I think in our first Jaguar special, I um, talked about how the D types and C types I found to be the most fascinating and wonderful of the Jaguar race cars. And part of the reason I feel that way is because of what I saw that being done to them and being done by them at the revival. Yeah. I mean, it's just absolute fantastic action everywhere you look. There's one thing about the off-track activities, which uh, I just need to add to that, Jim, which is that for three days, Goodwood Motor Circuit is the world center of mansplaining. Yo, boy, howdy. <laughs> Walk around the paddock and, you know, I mean, it, it is it is an event which appeals to all the family husbands wives kids um but for different reasons and walk around the paddock and there will be somebody in a a flat hat and a sports jacket standing in front of the car 
with his wife saying, well, this was the car which originally was driven by Jack Brabham. And then Bruce McLaren took it over in 1960. And then it was converted into a Formula 5000 car. And you can see this poor, mm. poor person glazing over. And you look around the paddock and it's happening everywhere. Yeah. Everybody is boring their partners to death with, uh, <laughs> with explaining about what, uh, what the thing's about. Sunday is um, Sunday is a, in some ways a repeat. We get the Barry Sheen Memorial Trophy again. We've got the Chichester Cup, which is for front-engined Formula Juniors, um, and the Richmond Trophy, which is for uh, front-engined Grand Prix cars. So two fifty Fs, Ferrari um, two four six, BRMP twenty five. Anything not to like there, Paul? Uh, it's that classic era, isn't it? Of uh... You know, the two and a half litre Formula One. And yeah, and I'm a great fan. You know, Maserati 250F, surely one of the greatest race cars ever. Yeah. And, and, a, and a race car, it just looks right. It just looks what a race car should look like. And, you know, I think we've touched on this a couple of times about the quality of the racing. And again, I, I'm trying to drift away from using the word historic because they aren't historic races. They are just really good races <laughs> yeah. that you get to watch. Yeah, you're right. Mm. Brooklyn's Trophy will be for... um Early, early cars, obviously, the clue's in the name. And then we move into the Royal Automobile Club TT celebration, which is a one-hour race, two drivers. Um, it is the big one. It is the one that everybody wants to win. Um, huge amount of prestige and winning winning it. Um, not to, not to uh, belittle the fact that if you win the TT at Goodwood Revival, the value of your car goes up very considerably. Mm. Um, but it's when everybody wants to win. And I mean, if I just go through some of the celebrity drivers who were in the last time this was run at the Revival in um, 2019, just going, going down the list, Lotterer, Dumas, Trellouet, Jordan, Pirro, both of the Franchitti brothers, Brabham, Hartley, Nidell, Soper, Mass, Yarny, Dumbreck, Jarvis, Pescarolo, Blakeney Edwards, Morley, Bryant, Watts, <laughs> Chandock. Um, mm-hmm. What is not to like in that? You know, it's just, <laughs> just just amazing. You you just couldn't get those people in in the same place. Um, that we've got the second half of St Mary's Trophy, um, which is always good and. Again, something that you and I enjoyed last time um, we were there, Jim, was the Glover Trophy, um, mm-hmm. which is for the, the little one-and-a-half-litre um, Formula One cars, and they they are brilliant, and I think uh, you know, that's that's something special. And, Paul, you've got a soft spot for those too, haven't you? I do, and I actually think that they're almost the perfect car for that circuit. And I know they come from, the you know, the, the you know if you like, one of the late period of the circuit when it was actually – you know, being used for frontline racing, but they're small cars. They've got the room to race. They're not super quick. So, you know, you actually get the chance to enjoy them as you're going past there, but they are such a beautiful precision piece of engineering, you know, and you say to someone these days that Formula One spent, you know, six seasons running with 1.5 litre engines, just around 200 horsepower. They give you a strange look, but it was great racing. It's your Jim Clark period, your Graham Hill. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful little cars. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Mm. And and one one point, Paul, that I w- I want to go back and and revisit just quickly, is 
the significance that Goodwood now has on the world stage, you, you touched on it briefly. There are cars with maybe a, I won't say, well, I will say sketchy provenance, but I don't mean that as in, as in anything untoward, but maybe, maybe just not a very good provenance or didn't have a lot of success in period. So you're not buying a Lamar winner, that, that kind of thing. Doing well at Goodwood now adds as much provenance to a car's saleability as had it been wildly successful in period. That's how important the Goodwood revival has become. Absolutely. And I think the other the other thing with that is just to mention that you don't enter for Goodwood. You are invited. <laughs> and that there's no question of you saying, well, my car is a 1964 car that ran in um, in the cars in with the races in period. And therefore, I want to just say, no, sorry, um, we will let you know. And that if if there's a car which is a bit suspect, if there's a car which is um, not in the spirit, you know, in the very early days, they actually, in this TT celebration, they allowed in the 250 LMs, uh, Ferraris, as of, you know, the cars that won in 64 at Le Mans. But it ran away and hid, uh, and that consequently they've never been back. You know, that technically they are entitled to be there. But no, you know, we don't want them because it spoils the racing. And I love that. <laughs> I love the fact that they just say, no, no, we're not going to do it. Sorry, the, the, the weekend um, finishes off with, with your race, Jim. That is uh, the um, Freddie March Memorial Trophy, which mm-hmm. is for D-types, etc. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I know that you can't be there this year, but I know you'll be standing next to me at the end of Sunday. I know you will. <laughs> In spirit, at least, that's right. Yeah, and uh, you know, so it's a yeah, it's a a fabulous, fabulous thing, and uh, yeah, it's there are people who go um, who don't see any racing because there is so much <laughs> other stuff to see, and and I know that for people like us and for most of our listeners, that's a complete anathema that you've got any of these cars that we're talking about out on track, and people are are watching the sixties dancers on the stage and um you know, I, I was up at the circuit yesterday and you know, there, there's a huge hair salon being built um <laughs> betty betty's hair salon actually jim yeah um, and uh that it's got you know it's got all the stuff there that as you say the shopping there are people who don't see any racing at all and that there's a bit of me that does how dare they be there and then you think, no, you know, you've bought the ticket, you can do what you like. Paul, I, th- I think th- there's an overused word, which is event, but the Goodwood Revival truly is an event, isn't it? Mm. It's just yeah. because there are so many aspects to it and so many people could go and enjoy it in different ways. And so, the, three, uh, yeah. the, three, the three most important words at Goodwood Revival, full English breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> With proper bacon, Jim. Proper, proper yeah. bacon, yeah. None of this namby pamby stuff. <laughs> right, yeah. That's two two parts of my day that I'll be thinking of you. <laughs> <laughs> mm. now, Jim, you um, you introduced me to the 
Monterey Car Week a few years ago, and uh, we spent a very pleasant time in California going to all sorts of different <laughs> events. I was surprised that it isn't sort of one event. There isn't an organizing committee or anything like that. Loads of different things are happening all over the place. All over the Monterey Peninsula, you've got things going on, but they're all part of Car Week. They're all independent and in many ways are unrelated, but it is a great a great experience, I think is the right word. Oh, it's it's car madness. It's it's a little bit different than what you're talking about with the revival, but it is it now become a two weekend event because the the historic racing at Laguna Seca uh, now covers two weekends. There's the pre-reunion event weekend and then the, the weekend of the big uh, Pebble Beach Concourse d'Elegance, which is the, the anchor of Monterey Car Week. Uh, there is uh, another re- revi- uh, another sorry uh, reunion weekend up at the racetrack. So there's two full weekends of historic racing. And then during the week, uh, and focusing in more on the weekend, there is a series of auctions. And the during the Monterey Car Week, the center of the universe of collector car, of the collector car world, is in Central California, in, in Northern California. And, of course, a year ago, because of COVID, things were, were put on hold. But this year, the the... Auction market came back with a with a vengeance. Over five hundred million dollars was realized in sales. Let that sink wow. in. That's half a billion dollars. Wow! Yeah, changed hands for uh, cars. Um, <clears throat> the biggest auction houses, of course, were you know were the big headline grabbers. Sotheby's one hundred and forty eight point five million over three days. Their biggest seller was a 1962 Aston Martin uh, DB4 GT Zagato that went for 9.52 million. The top ten at Sotheby's was very interesting. Two Aston Martins, a 1963 Shelby Cobra works car, which is very rare, and seven Ferraris. So it was another huge year. If you were a Ferrari fanatic, as always, there's a lot of gold chains being displayed out at Monterey during during car week. <laughs> <laughs> the Sotheby's had 44 cars top a million dollars. Now, Gooding and Company is the official auction house that's actually tied and has the connection with the Pebble Beach Concourse d'Elegance. They did 107 million dollars worth of sales. And they had two cars in double figures. And in fact, they had the two top selling cars of the entire weekend. They had a 1995 McLaren F1 went for $20 million. They had a 1959 Ferrari GT, uh, a 250 GT long wheelbase California Spider that went for over $10 million. Uh, Bonhams had... Uh, Thirty-six point nine million, and Meekum, which is the American kind of muscle car, folks, fifty-seven point four million dollars. Now it wasn't just exotics and that sort of stuff. One of the other cool things about Monterey is that's probably the time of year when we get the most uh, race cars going across the block, and the the top seller of the race cars was the uh, from Gooding and Company. No surprise there. 
a 29 Bugatti 35B Grand Prix car uh, went for $5.6 million. One of the cars we'll be talking about in our upcoming uh, part two of our Jaguar special, an XJR 15 from 1991, just missed the $2 million mark at $1.9 million. Um, Bonham's best race car was uh, a 74 Alpha 33TT that went for 1.6. The winning is, <clears throat> sorry, the winning is Shelby Mustang ever uh, went for 1.2 million. And one that was kind of uh, two that were really close to my heart that I was that were, I was watching for the 1986 March 86C Indy winner went for 1.4 million dollars. And a 1980 Porsche 935, one of Ted Field's Interscope cars, went for $1.9 million. So it was a huge, huge year. Uh, the racing was great on the hill, as always, but the action uh, on the auction blocks was stunning this year. Records set all over the place. Gooding and uh, Sotheby's both broke five records um, for for types of cars. Um, and, and their sales. So absolutely wild week. And that, um, that whole Pebble Beach event, um, I've, I've been, as we all have been to, uh, to lots of events where you have to wear, wear Wellington boots because it's so muddy that you probably need to wear boots at uh, Pebble Beach just to wade through the cash. Yeah. Because you know, <laughs> there, there is, there is so much. Everybody looks so wealthy besides anything yes. else. Uh, it's um, it's just an incredible thing, isn't it? Oh, it's it is, and the the concourse is held on uh, the golf course, and so it is absolutely pristine. And the winner of Best in Show this year was a Mercedes 540K Autobahn Courier. And uh, it was, uh, again, an absolutely fantastic, fantastic event. Uh, the weather was, was cooperative throughout the week, which is always a big deal. And it was good for people to be back uh, despite, uh, you know, restrictions. The event uh, week has changed a little bit because it had gotten so big that the city fathers of many of the small communities that, that make up the the Monterey Carmel area finally clamped down a little bit on the number of events. So the the number of car shows and the number of enthusiast events has been curtailed a little bit, but that didn't slow the auction houses down at all. The historic racing news radio show. Now it's uh, it's time to play our piece of opinionated nonsense that is the uh, the corridors of power so are you ready gentlemen yes Good. locked and loaded <laughs> <laughs> of this month having uh, having been through the best of things in motorsport you know we've talked about the best liveries we've talked about the best drivers we've talked about best race tracks other end of this uh, other end of the telescope the weirdest cars ever to race any character, any category, any era, the only requirement is that the car has to have started a race. So they, you can't have the madcap cars that didn't. It's uh, It's got to be the ones that did. So uh, each of our panellists will choose three cars, and then it's my job to pick a winner. So, Paul, you're the first cab off the rank this time. 
And uh, what have you got? Right, well, the brief was weird, wasn't it? And uh, I'm sure that uh, everyone's going to have huge, great and very, very intricate explanations as to why their particular choices is weird. But, hey, just win it first time out, I say. So my first choice <laughs> is, and I've been practicing saying this, so I'm hoping I'm going to get it right. The Nardi Danolnar Bissiluro. No, no, you didn't. <laughs> oh, would you want to have a go? It's easy for you to say. Oh. Basically, yeah. This car is just plain weird. If, if you want to know how weird, just Google Nardi, N-A-R-D-I, Le Mans 1955, and you can <coughs> see what we're talking about. Now, Nardi had run a car at Le Mans the year before, and it was a relatively conventional-looking sports car that lasted a whole seven laps. But it returned a year later with a new car that looked like nothing else in the race before or since. <coughs> it was essentially a twin-boom design, two narrow bodies, each house housing two wheels, with a wing section in between them. One body contained the cockpit for the very brave driver, the other, the engine and gearbox, and each featured a headlight on the front. Now, the wing section in between had a radiator on the front and originally an air brake at the back. But then that was uh, pointed out that in the, under Le Mans rules at the time, you had to have two seats. So the air brake was taken out. They put in a little seat. So technically it had two seats, but you actually had to be able to access the two seats from each other, apparently, which I hadn't realized. So a, a chunk of the uh, actual bodywork was taken out, which made a rather weak car even weaker, shall we say. <laughs> Now, engine-wise, what are you going to do? They had an absolutely screaming four-cylinder Giannini engine of a whole 737 capacity, which delivered 62 horsepower at a 7,000 RPM. <laughs> but hey, you know the car only weighed 450 kilos. So small was this car that the steering wheel could not be round. The bottom of it had to be flattened off to allow the driver to squeeze in and out. Now, it was quickly found that stability was not this lightweight strong point as there were several spins in qualifying, and the uh, brave, brave drivers, uh, Maria de Monte and Carlo Molini, found that even looking round in the cockpit was enough to unsettle the car. <laughs> now, obviously, you go racing, what are you trying to do? You're trying to blow the opposition away, aren't you? Instead, unfortunately, that's what happened to the Nardi, because five laps into the race, de Monte was at the wheel as the quicker cars reached them, and a blast of air, reputedly from a, a, a D-type Jaguar, was enough to see him lose control and plant the little car firmly in the trackside ditch. And uh, that was it, really. That was the, the race career of the Nardi finished. And uh, Enrico Nardi himself soon tired of cars. And uh, if you remember that unique steering wheel, he moved into making elegant and much sought after steering wheels for some of the most classic cars <coughs> of the period and subsequent decades. But, uh, yeah, Google the car, look at it. And, yep, there's your winner, basically. But <laughs> straight, you forced me in. into two other choices, didn't you? Mm. Right. Well, you know, some cars can be weird by design, as we've just seen, and uh, some are weird, really, from how they end up. And I think in this case, my next choice is a, a classic fish out of water. And uh, the 1959 Formula One scene was coming to a head at the US Grand Prix at Sebring. Jack Brabham, Sterling Moss, Tony Brooks, all in a line with their first world, world titles. And uh, Moss was on pole in his Cooper, Brabham alongside in another Cooper, Brooks a row back in the Ferrari. But my selection was way further back on the grid on the very last row. And it's the Curtis Craft of Roger Ward. Now, on a grid where the rear engine Coopers were a sign of the future of the sport, and with classic names Ferrari, Maserati and Lotus all represented, sitting high and proud in his Curtis was the winner of that year's Indianapolis 500, Roger Ward, in a two-litre short wheelbase sprint car designed for the tough and close racing on dirt ovals where the, uh, the cars slid in skillfully controlled oversteer through the corners. But oddly enough, also compliant with Formula One rules with its often Hauser engine and uh, two-speed gearbox. 
So <laughs> compliant, yep. Competitive, uh, sadly no. Because while Moss snatched pole within a time of exactly three minutes, Ward was a whole 43 seconds back in a car that couldn't match and you know, looked very different from the latest F1 machinery. Now, by all accounts, Ward's entrance, which was, I love, I love that, I do love the American team, leader card racers from Milwaukee, have been inspired to enter after Ward and the Cortis, Curtis, had beaten a Maserati 250F, no longer really the cutting edge at that time, in a race at Lime Rock. And uh, when it quickly became obvious that the little car, and you know, and it was little even compared to the Coopers, you know, the rear engine Vanguard, by all accounts, Ward, who uh, won two USAC, USAC titles in a long career and uh, you know, won a second Indy 562 to match his 59 win, and who was, Jim, and I hope you'll back me up on this, no mean driver was Roger Ward. Yeah, yeah. He, was, he, was the, he was tough. He was a tough guy. That's right. And reputedly took it all in very, very good grace realising that they'd made a slight error. And uh, he was lapsed several times before retiring after 20 of the 42 laps with clutch failure. Admittedly, you know, actually not even running last. He was ahead of the Porsche RSK sports car that also somehow complied with the rules that had been entered. So, uh, yep, the Curtis Craft, a dirt racer that took on the challenge of a Grand Prix. (laughs) So I'm trying to keep this very, very different. So uh, my, my next final choice is a Marcus Mantis. Now, Marcus have used the Mantis name a lot over the years, but the car I'm talking about is a one-off built by company founder Jen Marsh in 1968. Designed for sports car racing, it originally designed to use a BRM V12 engine, but actually appeared with the cheaper Repco V8 that the Brabham used, and apparently reputedly it was an engine that the Brabham F1 team had no more need of, and uh, the ubiquitous Hewland gearbox at the time. The car had a fantastically futuristic look. It looks like something Jerry Anderson would have designed for Thunderbirds. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, although, although actually it was the work of a road car designer, uh, Dennis Adams, who did all the Marcus cars. It had a large co- cockpit, ample glazing, and angular, bo- ang- angular bodywork that actually, uh, you look at a picture, it actually reminds me, if you remember those dome cars from in the 1980s that always looked like nothing else. Yeah, it's all got a touch of that going on about it. You know, a double wishbone suspension front and rear. And uh, remember this when I come back to it in a minute, monocoque construction. So, uh, yeah, they tested the car at Castle Coombe, tested it at Goodwood and uh, arrived at Spa in 1968 for the thousand kilometers, but only got there in time to take part in the final practice session and uh, was hobbled by an alternator problem. And of course, this was the old Spa, not the new circuit of today. And uh, Formula 2 racer Rob Widows, who was down for driving duties, um, sensibly withdrew himself from consideration to drive. And uh, he was replaced by Ed Nelson. And uh, you know, the race was a torrent. It was very, very wet. And after a few laps in heavy spa rain, the car was withdrawn due to low pressure and uh, more, low oil pressure, more alternator troubles. And uh, apparently the team were also keen to save the engine because they were going to be running at Le Mans next month. Now, that race never happened after the car was damaged in a flood at the Marcus Works in Wiltshire. So... So, you know, what What about the weird? Because, frankly, up until now, it's just that typical motorsport unfulfilled promise like so many others in motorsport. Well, you remember I mentioned the monocoque. We've seen monocoques in steel. We've seen them in aluminium, more recently in carbon fibre. But this was another approach and one which could have seen splinter removal and a necessity after an accident. <laughs> this was a monocoque made of stressed plywood. <laughs> yep. That Marcus was a wooden wonder at a time when the GT40 and Porsche 908 were dominant, and we were only a year away from the mighty 917 Porsche. <laughs> so, you know, maybe if the alternator had been reliable and not rained at Spa, you know, the car could have flourished and maybe motorsport could have gone in a totally different direction. But, uh, yeah, probably not. 
<laughs> That's superb. Thank you very much for that one. And uh, Joe Bradley, what's uh, what's your choice? I've gone a little bit down the conventional route. However, it doesn't stop them from being weird and wonderful, though. And my first choice, um, not my favourite choice, but this is not the one that's going to win, but it's going to make the decision hard. And you never know, it might just... Um, it's the, the the most modern of my choices, and it's the Nissan GT RLM. Uh, oh, sorry, the Nissan GT RLM Nismo. That's the LMP1 hybrid that was brought to Le Mans by Nissan with all the bells and whistles and marketing um, ballyhoo that went with it. Um, it was a very strange-looking car insofar as it had the engine at the front. Um, that's not strange in itself because we'd seen front engine sports cars in the form of the panels going very well in the American Le Mans series. And also they brought them to Le Mans. However, the difference between this was it, the engine was at the front by dint of being in front of the driver. It was actually a mid engined car because the dimensions of the car, the engine was actually just in front of the front bulkhead where the driver sat. The gearbox was in front of the engine. Now, this car was designed by Ben Balby, and his brief from Nissan was to not design an Audi copy. Well, talk about <laughs> contrasts. <laughs> he, certainly took, he certainly took that one under his wing uh, because he didn't design anything like anything else. He didn't design an Audi copy, uh, a Pescarolo copy, a Panos copy. He didn't design an anything copy. It was it was quite a clean sheet of paper, clearly. Um it was also, unlike other front-engine designs like the panels, it was powered, uh, the main power went through the front axle, and the rear axle was only powered by the hybrid electric motors through a very complex, and this is, this is where the complexity comes in, that puts it into the strange category, by some different, each wheel on the rear had a kind of a differential kind of gearbox gear thing that kind of worked the, so that the wheels were driven in a kind of a not direct, it wasn't a direct drive to the rear engine. It went through quite a thing, which I, I don't begin to understand. Um, <laughs> yeah, we can tell. Yeah. Um, I I've read it. I've read it. And I still don't understand even how to explain it. But there you go. Um, basically, the rear end, the, the only reason for the rear wheels in this design was to stop the diffuser at the back trail in the ground. He didn't really need it. He didn't really need it. Everything was done at the front of the car. And the reason for that was because they could use all of the aero on the car to, uh, once it got past the front of the car, all of that aero efficiency was optimized at the rear end of the car. And they were able to get maximum straight line speed with very little drag because of that. There was basically nothing at the rear of the car. That You kind of looked at the car when in the flesh and you had the uh, you had the, the gearbox, the front wheels, the gearbox, the engine, the uh, driver cockpit area, and then basically the driver cockpit area had like a teardrop kind of um, narrowed at the rear of the cockpit and then nothing. And then these two rear wheels that sat there and the air just absolutely just flowed off the back. 
And it was the fastest thing on the Mulzan in that year of 2015 when it first appeared and then subsequently at the 16. Um, it was, um, and I'm being polite here, a complete failure. Um, it was 20 seconds slower than the Porsche that uh, was quickest in qualifying. So 20 seconds slower around Le Mans than the car than a car in its same class, and that I mean that that's a catastrophic failure, uh, quite frankly. Um, my own recollection of the car is that it was massively, massively complicated. When you, and I've seen plenty of cars with their bodywork removed, and you look at the design of things like the Audi R8, and you see where the engineers kind of the design engineering that's gone into it. And you think, you know, that is fascinating. With the, the, the Nissan, they took the front bodywork off, and I'll come to that in a minute as well. And it was just like a plate of – it looked like a plate of spaghetti. And the way that they put everything in there. And the thing that for me, in my opinion, this is just my personal opinion, there was lots of things that went in that front end. And they were trying to remember that the, the idea, the concept, was to clear up the rear end and have nothing there. It would all like to be in the front. And so everything was compacted into that area under the in, in front of the cockpit. And it wasn't designed with endurance racing in mind or having designed that concept of performance design, the fact that we are now at an endurance race and we might just have to take the gearbox off and might just have to get at the alternator. And things like that. And I, I did see the car come in and to remove the front bodywork to get at the engine and the front suspension and that kind of part of the car is usually just, you know, three, four, six max clips uh, or, you know, twist bolts and then off it comes. With the Nissan GTRLM, you had to remove six grub screws from the heat-resistant plate around where the exhaust came out the front to, rem to, to clear the exhaust, to clear the bodywork coming off. Six grub screws, uh, 12 grub screws, six either side, yeah. where, the, where the exhaust came out of the front, uh, front engine cover. And then, you be then, having done that, then you thought about how do I get the engine cover off. And it was a shame, really, because we expected so much... Um, I was a I was a big admirer of Darren Cox, who was the 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 the, uh, the the man behind the whole sort of marketing part of the Nissan involvement in that in that period. Um, and and I really you know could see the they, they came into the race with a with an idea of how do we beat the conventional uh, the conventional cars? How do we find that unfair advantage? And they, and they were very, very courageous. And you never know, with a bit more investment or a bit more development, uh, the car might not be classed as the failure that it was, and it might not be classed in any way. Like I'm, I'm looking at it now as a, as a complete, strange and bewildering design of a race car. Um, so that's why I've put the Nissan uh, GTR LM in there. Um, my next one's even more conventional and more of a um, a fan of historic racing. It's the the first and only Formula One Grand Prix winner, the Tyrrell P34, the six-wheeler. It was launched 
at a time, or I should say it was designed at a time by Derek Gardner, who was the Tyrrell designer and world championship winning designs, at a time when Formula One had almost become a spec formula. Um, and by that, I mean, you, you pretty much had to, you know, find yourself a Cosworth DFV, um, build yourself a tub, and you were in Formula One. And everybody was running, apart from Ferrari at the time, um, and BRM, um, everyone was pretty much competitive with that simple conventional Cosworth DFV and away you go. And so getting that, finding that little edge again, the unfair advantage, as Mark Donahue said, um, was part of why the six-wheeler came about. And they were trying to find that edge. Um, of course, when the car was launched, the car was actually launched in September of 1975. Um, and it was launched with a big bells and whistles uh, affair in a, in a London hotel. And the way that they did it was they had um, metal hoops over the front wheels. It was under, under a cover. And so the cover, you could see the airbox, yep, yeah, front uh, rear end mm, there's definitely a rear wing under there and then the two uh, raised bits at the front of the car but they were actually hoops uh, metal hoops to keep the <laughs> the illusion that it had conventional front and a conventional front end so when they pulled the cover off it went came off the car from the rear up oh, there's the rear wing yeah pretty standard oh because with dfa yeah nothing there uh cockpit mm, standard standard you know and then the front wheels were exposed, and there they were. Oh, my goodness. Four front wheels, tiny little things, steerable front wheels that they were going to race with. And there was, you know, open mouth, aghast. How was this going to work? And, you know, from, a, from an engineering point, um, how the hell are we going to set that thing up? <laughs> Remember, you know, caster camber. It's bad enough trying to get that right on two wheels at the front, but trying to get another two <laughs> wheels behind with the same rate of camber or the same rate of grip and where do we put the camera and the caster. And I don't know if you know this, guys, but the it was only the front wheels that were steered from the, the steering column. Um, the steering column um, affected the front wheels, and it was a, 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 another steering connection, a bit like on a truck where you've got a steering arm that then – makes the uh, the wheels at the rear of the front two steer with them. So, mm -hmm. but the, the steering wheel, you could actually disconnect the two rearward wheels um, and, and the, the front wheel, it was only the front wheels that were actually connected to the steering wheel. They were, there was a further connection to the, the ones at the rear. The principle behind what to do this was to change the, uh, to, get, to get an advantage with the low frontal area. Um, with it with, and get the car to cut through the air and, and gain speed and also created less lift um so that you could run less um you could run more downforce because you were creating less lift with the smaller wheels the, the big wheels and the the suspension would create lift on a conventional car so they all they, they gained something there um Schechter was a, a, a Schechter still Becries the car as being rubbish, quote unquote. And he, he, he's, I saw or I read somewhere that he said, Oh, I just, what did you think of the, the P34? I just kept breaking. It just kept breaking. Well, it kind of didn't, you know, out of the, out of the, um, out of the 12 races he did in 76 with the car, he only had two retirements and the rest of the time he finished in the points. 
and I'll come to what he actually did to with the car in a moment. So the car started at the at ro- round four in Spain. Schechter didn't want to bother with it. It was Depaye that got behind the project, and he took <laughs> it out. Now the other thing that was wrong with the design that made this thing strange was it had to have bespoke wheels made. It had to have bespoke tyres, so Goodyear were on board to create these unique bespoke tyres to fit these small wheels. But more importantly, the brakes could be had to be smaller to go, because at the time the brakes are inside the front wheel, uh, attached to the front upright, and now we've got four small discs instead of two bigger discs at the front of the car. But because the discs were small, they had a tendency to overheat. And the majority of the retirements in the certainly the first year and the second year, in fact, there was only two years that the car ran, 76 and 77, it was mainly brake problems that put the car out. And it was at the car's debut, it retired with brake problems. And it, you can imagine these tiny little brake discs that have been. And the other thing was that when the driver pressed the brake, three wheels would keep rotating and only one would lock up. And then the next time he braked, it would be another one of the four that locked up, and the other three would keep rotating. How do you how do you even race engineer that concept? <laughs> that that's that's why I'm pitching this car in. Okay, and what's your, what's it, your Hang on, hang, hang on, I'm not finished hang yet. On, hang on. Oh, good lord, I'm not finished yet. Um, I just want to say what the car went on to do. It it, it when when Depaye, um qualified it in Spain, he qualified it third. 11 places ahead of Schechter. And you can imagine it. Schechter jumped on the bandwagon uh, next race out. Um, two weeks later, Schechter came fourth at Zolder. Then at Monaco, the race after that, they were second and third. So everything's looking towards this car being an absolute world builder because the race after Monaco, Sweden, Schechter first, Depaye second. After that... It led races, it got podiums, but it never won again. And the reason why it never won again, if you were to ask Derek Gardner, was because it was Goodyear. Uh, Goodyear had to focus more so on the Ferrari and the McLaren of Nicky Lauder and James Hunt, who were really gunning for the championship, and they were kind of neglected. That's the words of Derek Gardner. I'll I'll leave it at that. I didn't know that. Yeah, I know. Fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Right, and, then. and number three, he is my winner. And again, I'm going to be. I'm pulling my chair out there. Did you hear that? <laughs> Have you broke your chair? There's, there's lots of reasons why this one's going to be the winner, Paul. You're going to be hard to find. What was the criteria again? Weird. Weird. Right. <laughs> there's a. It, all right. The overall concept of the car was weird in itself. But when I dig deep at the technicalities of how they got this thing to work, you have seen nothing but weird. I'm talking about the Brabham BT46B, the fan car. Oh, yes. Now then, let's put this into context, right? Ground effect underfloor aerodynamics were just coming to the fore. The Lotus 78 had appeared in 1977, and it was inconsistent. It was inconsistent for a variety of reasons. Um, I think Cosworth are experimenting with the engine and different fuels and other things, driver errors and the like. However, 78 came the Lotus 79, and they basically came in and wiped the floor in 1978. And Gordon Murray, 
who was the designer at Brabham, um, he and Bernie got their heads together and it was like, what we're going to do? We're going to have to come up with something. What is this aerodynamic thing that they've got? What What is it? What How can we match that? Well, guess what, guys? They couldn't. And this is the reason why. The Lotus 79 ran the Cosworth DFV. And at the rear of the Cosworth, at the rear end of the car where the engine is, the Cosworth DFV has a beautiful V-shaped configuration. And the and the crank and the sump area runs down the middle of the car, leaving either side of the engine absolutely <coughs> free for Venturi airflow out to the back of the car, creating the downforce. What did the Brabham BT44 have? Uh, sorry, the Brabham BT46B have. It had a flat 12 Alfa Romeo engine. And right where the Venturi needs to start its upsweep, there's, there's four massive cylinder heads either side of that engine, which completely block out that area of the car. So basically, Gordon Murray had to come up with an idea of how to use, in a similar way to the 79, the skirts containing the air. So he came up with this idea. Um, it was it was basically an idea of that, that derived from him looking at Article 3.7 of the rules, the regulations. He scoured the regulations, and I'll, I'll read it out because I've made a note of it. Article 3.7 is on aerodynamics. Anything that's primary function is to have uh, anything that's primary function is to have an aerodynamic influence on the car must always remain stationary and be fixed relative to the sprung mass of the car. So he basically came up with this fan idea of sucking the car to the floor. And he then had to get around that regulation. So he had to ensure that the facade of the fan being used primarily for cooling was proved and he went on to prove it and i think that 50 it the, the cooling aspect wouldn't by 52 percent and the and the and the suction thing got 40 percent of the test that they ran um the, the fan design was was intriguing in itself the, the problem that you would have is for a fan to be attached to the primary shaft of the gearbox running at engine revs would mean that the fan went from zero to 8,000 revs in half a second. <laughs> Couldn't do that. Couldn't have that because the fan was just breaking up and they went through tests of this to find out. So clutch number one, that's the one between the engine and gearbox. Let's call that, right? When the driver lets the clutch out, the drive's taken up and away we go. We need the, to declutch to get the gears, etc., etc. Let me introduce clutch number two. This allowed slippage between the gearbox and the fan. So as the fan speeded up, it engaged the fan to get faster and faster. So it didn't go from zero to 8,000 revs. It eased its way up to that speed. And would you believe that number two clutch was also adjustable. So all of this testing that went on to fine-tune that fan and how it engaged and how it speeded up at a rate that wouldn't destroy the fan was part of that ridiculous engineering that went into that car. Now then, I'm gonna I'm gonna have a I'm gonna have to uh, refer to a quote here because I'm gonna talk about gear changing. 
Let me introduce clutch number three. This is the third clutch mechanism on this car. And this is from Gordon Murray's fabulous book um, on his history in, in car design. We did a third clutch, which was a sprag clutch, a one-directional clutch. As soon as these put, the driver put his foot on the main car, on, these, on the main car clutch, and took the torque out of the shaft, the sprag clutch would freewheel and decouple the fan inertia from the main shaft of the gearbox, decouple that completely, and then when he banged his foot off the clutch again, the sprag clutch would catch and the fan would be re-engaged and t- it took the inertia out of the drive. Now, the reason why they had to do that was because gear changing on a straight-cut gearbox without synchro mesh is kind of a, a pretty much a big art form. Double declutching, blipping down the throttle, getting the inertia, um, getting the inertia of the slow-down gear and the speeding-up gear matched so you can change gear is quite an art. Now, the problem they had was applying that kind of philosophy to how they how they disengaged the fan to stop the fan when they blipped the clutch. How why the fan would as they blipped the clutch to down change, the fan would speed up to twelve thousand revs and break. So that's where clutch number three came in. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry, was that four? No, no, that was three. Um. Let me introduce clutch number four. <laughs> clutch number 28. Clutch number four was applied when the car was sat in the garage and the mechanics were warming up the engine. And um, as they were warming up the engine, Gordon Murray noticed that the, um, the car was being sucked to the ground. Every time they revved the engine, the car would be sucked to the ground. And he thought, Somebody's going to notice that, and we don't want people to notice that. So he, he stuck a fourth clutch in there on a lever on the side of the bodywork that when the car was stationary and the guys needed to rev the engine, they would pull the lever, disconnect the fourth clutch, and then when they need, when they were ready to drive it away, they would reconnect the clutch. <laughs> uh, it basically disconnected the fan for, from warming up. Um Guys, I haven't even begun to talk about sealing the skirts. Right, so you've got this area under the car that you need to contain the air, like a hoover. It's like when you put your hoover on the floor and and then you lift it off the floor, you lose the suction. So the skirts running uh, alongside the car, but also across the chassis at the front and across the chassis at the rear to contain that suction element, would you believe those skirts were on adjustable leaf springs that they fine-tuned for the rear. Because if, if the leaf springs were too hard, the skirts would run and would wear out. And then into the race, they would lose their skirts and lose their downforce as the race. So you would have to adjust the rate of the, of the leaf spring on these, on, this, on these skirts to be just enough to keep the, keep the skirt of the ground without wearing it out. Now, I'm going to go to... Um, I'm, I'm going to have to read this to you guys because it's the, the the skirts that run alongside either side of the chassis, fabulous. They work the treat. But the ones that run crossways, well, as the car traveled, the skirt would, with the airflow, be sucked inwards and then be sucked upwards and lose the seal. So they used the, 
They used sailcloths sewn together. And I'm going to read you this. We can't, we can't, I, I still, I mean, how they, how they even come up with these ideas and then apply them is just fascinating. And why, I would have given up by now. I would have given up and gone back to doing something else. Um, we came up with two, bo- <laughs> we came up with two balloon sailcloths, tadpole shaped things, bags behind the skirts. His wife, sti- my wife stitched them on a sewing machine at home. Then we punched a series of about one inch holes in the skirt facing the dynamic pressure. These bags would blow up and change shape. And there were two of them, one behind the other. So basically these little bags would inflate with the airflow and then they would, and then they would deflate with the lack of speed and allow the skirts to be, uh, to continue that suction. I mean, absolutely fascinating. A hundred design drawings, uh, Murray says, had to be completed within two months to get this car onto the grid. Um, how did the drivers drive this car? How was it? Joe, because Joe, it was I'm complete. Gonna have, Joe, it, I'm going to have to stop you there because you're going to run out of time. Otherwise, are we? Yes. Oh, this is this is the interesting bit. Quick. So the drivers had to address the driving of this car with keeping the revs up. It was completely alien to them. You go into a corner, you lift off. No, no, you had to keep your foot in. But how would you know that the skirts were still in in contact with the ground because you were doing thirty miles an hour more? So would you believe they re- they found an altimeter, and the drivers had a little altimeter that went from green to red. <laughs> so as they went into the corner, keeping their foot in instead of lifting off, if they look quickly looked at the green dash, and it was if it was in green, they kept their foot in. If it was red, they've lost pressure. Incredible car car was used only once, where it won, it won in Sweden in nineteen seventy eight. And then against everybody's, uh, you ask a lot of people, you know, the fan car was banned. It was never banned. It was pulled by Bernie Eccleston. And the reason it was pulled out by Bernie Eccleston was because he didn't want to pay everybody off because everybody knew they were going to walk away with the championship. So, And everybody would have to do their own version. And everyone would have to do their own version. It was apparently, there was no, I mean, Andretti was going about and Chapman was going about saying it was spitting stones out the back. Uh, Murray says it couldn't possibly because the actual fan speed at the back was only 55 miles an hour. That's all they needed to create that suction and create that downforce and that the car was then able to be, you know, absolutely obliterate the field. And that that was a car put together in two months and it obliterated the field. It would have gone on to absolutely walk that 70-year championship. Jimmy, you still there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, for, sorry for the length of that, well, guys. Well, I got that very was, excited well, by it all. Well, that was, well, that was a technological marvel. It was what? hardly weird. <laughs> so come on then, Jim, tell us yours. It was hardly weird because it was a direct copy of one of my cars. <laughs> the Chaparral 2J that had not only one fan, but two fans. <laughs> And pre- Gordon Murray didn't come up with that on a on a uh, drug-addled night <laughs> of fun with uh, with the Beatles. He he just copied Allegedly. Jim Hall. Come on, Joe. All right, I'm gonna <laughs> start with the Chaparral 2J. Now this was a car that was very boxy and weird for the era you have to remember that in 
the 60s with the Can-Am cars, there really weren't a lot of rules. And all the cars were very, very voluptuous and had had lots of curves and bumps and, and you know, uh, very much like a seductive woman. Uh, the Chaparral 2J was a box with four wheels and two fans. Now, the fans themselves and also, wait for it, Lexan skirts. Where have we heard that before? Um, the Chaparral 2J had a standard aluminum block Chevy engine, 427, pretty much 650 horsepower, pretty much standard fare for Can-Am cars of that era. But what it had were the two fans at the back of the car. And those fans looked like jet engines. They looked like fans from jet engines because they were held in place by these two uh, cones that um, kept the gave it the look of a of a of a of a jet engine. And I'm pouring through my notes here because Joe got me so wound up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But the car, the fans themselves, and it was the same theory. Uh, it's the exact same theory as the Brabham. The two, dual fan system pulled air through the car. The Lexan uh, side skirts uh, made the seal with the racetrack that allowed the car to be pulled down to the racetrack. And it was um, a system that you have to remember, Jim Hall was the guy that was the first one to put the wings on the car and that sort of stuff. When the car debuted at Watkins Glen, uh, it could generate 2,200 pounds of downforce. Wow. Fully fueled, the 2J could pull 1.25 to 1.5 Gs through the turns. And Hall said, we can go full throttle without wheel spin or uncontrollable oversteer. You can't imagine a car can stop as fast or corner as hard than this one does. The other dirty little secret was is that the car, just on the fan power, could go 40 miles an hour. So it was almost like a little boost of horsepower uh, besides sucking the car down to the road. The car was frighteningly fast. Uh, Vic Alford qualified the car on the pole at Watkins Glen. Uh, the car, uh, the team then missed uh, six races after that. It was ultimately doomed because it was uh, a little bit too far ahead of its time. It was banned for the movable, um, the movable aerodynamic. They considered it uh, uh, to be a movable aerodynamic device. So, all in all, it was. It, it was revolutionary, um, and it was a car that kind of made supplanted Jim Hall's legend. But and it was and it was and it was weird. It was weird because of its propulsion, but it was also weird in its very very boxy look. Uh, car number two of my list is goes back many, many years. It's a Cadillac. It's a series 61 Cadillac that raced at Le Mans. Well, what's so weird you say about that? Well, this is the car that was called the Le Monster. Uh, 
You see, Lamont at the time made a regulation that you could rebody standard automobiles. So Briggs Cunningham and company had entered two Cadillac Series 61 cars to Le Mans. And to Hedge's bet, he entered a third one. And this one, the car was taken to a wind tunnel and they redesigned the bodywork. Now, the wind tunnel was, uh, and again, this is 1950. And you're thinking, wind tunnel? What are, you, what are you talking about? Well, the wind tunnel was used for crop dusting airplanes. And they designed an aerodynamic body that they put on the Cadillac. And it was this flat, it almost looks, the car is currently, uh, the Revs Institute in, in Naples, Florida has the car. And if you go to the Revs Institute website, you can see uh, some actually fantastic pictures, including a cutaway of the car. And through the aerodynamic work, it's a, it looks like a big flat aircraft carrier going down the racetrack. Um, yes, it does. <laughs> it, it's, it's this giant uh, thing. The wheelbase was, was the same. The car was a little bit narrower than the, the standard 61 and proved to be 13 miles an hour faster than the, the standard Cadillac. Um, Unfortunately, the car uh, finished 11th uh, because of some uh, mechanical issues with the car. But it is remembered to this day as probably one of the weirdest. Uh, you can go up to any of the you know, French folks who are part of the, uh, that love the history of Le Mans and just say Le Monster. And their eyes light up, and it's, yeah, that was one weird car. <laughs> My final entry, and I got to hand it to Joe on this one, because I think we both, we, we, we're both headed in the same direction with this. But, you know, I, w I was kidding about uh, Gordon Murray and the, and the partying and, and that sort of stuff. But Ben Bowlby is somebody I would love to party with. Because <laughs> that guy really does, he must really do some fun stuff. Because not only did he design the the ill-fated Nissan, he was the designer of the Delta Wing. Yes, the Flying Phallus. That came <laughs> from the mind of Ben Bowlby. Now, much like the Nissan that, that Joe talked about, um the backstory with this car is almost as interesting as the, the car itself. Uh, and also both are a little weird. Um, the design concept was commissioned by IndyCar in um, 2009. They started a project where they wanted to totally change the face of what IndyCar looked like. And so they put out this, design brief and Ben Baldy along uh, with financing from Chip Ganassi in February of 2010 at the Chicago Auto Show <clears throat> uh, the this car was was debuted it had a very narrow front track which many people when they looked at it wondered how the hell are you even going to steer it um, 
and because the original IndyCar design was a single seater and, and that sort of stuff. The car went through some changes. Uh, in 2012, it was entered at Le Mans under the Project 56. And I'm sure the Twitter sphere or one of you guys will correct me. I think this was the first Project 56 car, was it not? Um, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, Dan Gurney's All-American Racers was a constructor. Duncan Dayton's Highcroft Racing Team uh, ran the car, and the international uh, IMSA owner, Don Panos, uh, was the managing partner on the project, meaning money behind it. And Nissan's Nismo division were part of the uh, engine in, in return for the naming rights uh, in, in 2012. So... It, the car uh, was designed to reduce aerodynamic drag, uh, dramatically slow, uh, marginally faster straight and cornering speed. The whole thing was drag and weight, and that proved to be the car's undoing. Uh, the car always suffered gearbox problems. Uh, it started out as an open wheeler, uh, and then uh, in 2013, they brought out a coupe version to race in the American Le Mans series. The car was the subject of a very messy lawsuit. Uh, in 2013, the Delta Wing Consortium, which was Don Panos and Chip Ganassi, uh, sued the former, sued, sued Bowlby, Nissan, uh, and I'm looking, and that was it, Bowlby and Nissan for damages. I love this damages and injunctive relief arising of theft of confidential and proprietary information misappropriation of trade secrets, breach of contract, unjust enrichment, that's my favorite, fraud, negligent misreputation, the lawsuit arising from the similarity, and the reason the lawsuit came about was because Bulby and Nissan, after the uh, after uh, 2012, after the, the lack of success at Le Mans, um, when the car was, was crashed, um, well, that was later. I'll get to that in a moment. Um, after the lack of success in 2012, Panos and Ganassi took the project over. Nissan and Balbi went away and did the Nissan Ziad RC, the, the blade glider concept car. Well, that brought about the lawsuit, and that was settled out of court with confidential terms in 2016, which means Mr. Panos and Mr. Ganassi probably got some money out of the deal. Um, it had a very checkered... Uh, racing, uh, it had very marginal success. As I said, it had a lot of uh, gearbox problems. Uh, 24 Hours Old Mom, Marino Frankie, Michael Crum, and uh, Satoshi Moriyama were driving the car. And they were, they were doing fairly well. 75 laps into the race, they got hit by Kaz Nakajima going through the Porsche curves in the Toyota TS-030 hybrid car. And... Uh, I think it was Marino behind the wheel, crunched the wall pretty hard, and that was the end of the day. Through uh, five seasons of racing in the American Le Mans Series, as I said, it went through, uh, it was a coupe, um, 2014, 2015, and 2016. 2016 was probably its high point. Uh, Catherine Legg actually teamed with Andy Merrick and Sean Rahal actually led uh, the tw Daytona 24 hours for about 29 laps. Um, Don tried to bring the car back for 2017, but uh, organizers said, no, we're, uh, 
uh, we're, we're done with that. And so the car was never, never raced again after, after that 2016 season. But if you, the, the, if the car was long and skinny, it looked, it, it looked to all eyes. There was no way it was going to work. It was wide in the back. Everything was designed, special tires designed by Michelin that, uh, because they were using, they were almost, uh, think, top fuel dragster tires. They were almost that. They were a little bit wider than that. But that's the what, what if you're trying to describe it to somebody uh, and you don't have pictures, that would be the visual way to do that. Um, small but more standard uh, racing rubber at, at the rear uh, and those very narrow skinny tires at, at the front. So that was pretty weird. And uh, from the pen of Ben Balby, I, I, I think that's one and two. I think, I think, I think uh, the Delta wing wins and uh, Joe, unfortunately, <laughs> second with the other uh, Ben Balby, uh, hate to bust your bubble. The oh. ever competitive Mr. Roller. Thank yeah. you for that, Jim. Um, that, that's the that's good. And, and can't, yeah, can't some... make it go away. <laughs> I'm uh, just let you know that, Photographs of all of these cars will be on our Facebook page over the course of the next few days. So um, Historic Racing News Facebook page, have a good look because we'll put all of these up so you can marvel at some of them. Just to to run through, uh, we have the Marcos Mantis from Paul Jurd, who also talked about the Roger Ward Curtis Craft and the Twin Boom Nardi LM. Uh, Joe, you talked about the Brabham fan car, about that Nissan LMP1 and the Tyrrell P34, and we just heard Jim talking about Le Monstre, uh, the Chaparral 2J and the Delta Wing. Interesting stuff. Um, while you were talking, Paul, I've, and you said about Ed Nelson um, being drafted into that car, that I have a a story about Ed Nelson, which is I used to to race a Ferrari 250LM when they had sort of just gone off the boil as being a competitive car. So it was sort of late 60s, and he used to run it in club racing. And I was, I was at Crystal Palace um, when that was a race circuit just outside London. And he was sitting in the car talking to somebody. And... This wide-eyed little lad went up and um, and said, "Could I have your autograph, please?" Um, which he happily did, and uh, he handed it to the person next to him for him to sign as well, and then handed my autograph book back to me. And it, on that page, it said Ed Nelson and Mickey Mouse. <laughs> now, the thing that I have never worked out is. Who was it who was sitting next to him, who was famous enough for him to ask for his autograph for me? <laughs> who was it? Who was that person? I'll never know. Um, the, uh, I think the Nissan LMP1 is a, is a good one. Um, it's interesting to hear what you say. My own personal view, Joe, is that had there not been so much PR hype and that if, if they'd done what so many entrants have done at the morning in the past to say this is a three-year project it will mm. take us that long to to come to fruition i think they could have made it work 
But that's a personal view, and I am not an engineer, and you know far more about it than I do. Um, that looking back at the other things, Jim Le Monstre is, yeah, I'm fabulous. We're lucky here in the UK in that uh, one of our listeners, in fact, Derek Drinkwater, who is a uh, Cadillac fan, has built an exact replica of that car, and we see that oh, from time to time, which is <laughs> which is beautiful. He's also got an exact replica of the other car that ran, um, so he's got the two of them sitting in uh, in his shed. Chaparral Tapp- 2J, yeah, I mean, that's, that's up there pushing the boundaries, and I think Delta Wing, the same thing. The thing for me, and this is where it's always difficult to make the, the choice, is that the brief was about being weird. Some of these are groundbreaking. Tyrrell P34, definitely a groundbreaker. Um, it was kind of weird, but it was breaking new ground. So cut to the chase. The weirdest car on this list, boys and girls, is the Nardi. So well done, Paul, for that. Um, that's... Uh, that is certainly the weirdest one. It's also, incidentally, the least successful. But that's uh, <laughs> that's maybe part of the point. But thank you, thank you for that. That was very good fun. Um, that's it for another edition of the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Don't forget the second part of our Jaguars in Competition special airs on the fifteenth of this month. So. Uh, do take part with that we'll be talking to lots of people about all sorts of racing jaguars including bill adam who spoke to jim and uh, he'll give us a very interesting insight into the group 44 cars run by bob tullius in the usa and then of course groundbreaking into le mans in the uh, in the mid 80s so ladies and gentlemen that's it thank you to joe bradley to jim roller and to paul jord Um, Thank you, gentlemen, very much indeed. If you have been, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.